0: Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast coming at you from Honey Creek State Park in very southern southeastern Iowa. And we are at the all team Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever meeting. About oh, everybody that's not on a tractor right now, planting habitat from an employee perspective is is in uh, Iowa for three days full of meetings, talking about best practices for the organization and doing some inspirational talks and getting people jacked up for the year ahead, uh, creating habitat for, for pheasants, for quail, and for sage grouse too, lesser prairie chickens, Warblers,
1: southwest little
0: flycatchers—you uh, you name it, we're doing it. <laughs> and so that's what, that's kind of the theme of this particular episode of On the Wing podcast. Um, we're going to dive deep into a program called Working Lands for Wildlife, with a special focus on our efforts uh, related to the sage grouse. You maybe have heard about the sage grouse init- initiative over the years. You maybe have it because it seems to be one of the best kept secrets about pheasants forever and quail forever, and our organization's role. Uh, so we are going to dive deep into sage grouse. But before we dive deep into sage grouse, we're going to meet Mister Sage Grouse himself, <laughs> kind of my doppelganger from the west. We we get confused for each other on occasion. Tim Griffiths, who has been known to wear the blaze orange blazer at pheasant fest with my name tag on it yeah we're kind of kind of long lost twins bob yeah, <laughs> where was your mom from <laughs> 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 well we're we're going to start down low here. Yeah. <laughs> no well,
2: yeah that's a great blazer i tell you it's just it speaks It Makes a statement.
0: <laughs> so, uh, going around the table, we got Tim Griffiths. Uh, we we have Ron Leathers our, from our Grants Department. Uh, probably the most important guy you've never never knew the name in the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever world. We got Michael Brown um, from the Sage Grouse Initiative, um, an employee of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And you, well, we'll get into everybody's um, background stories because you got an interesting. Backstory too. Yep. You're probably the best baseball player on the on the team. <laughs> but let's start with Tim. You uh, y- you are Mr. Sage Grouse. How would you become Mr. Sage Grouse? Yeah, that that's quite a quite a title, I guess. We L- we call you Big Boomer <laughs> <laughs> affectionately. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll go with Tim here. No. <laughs> I kind of like that. I, I can see that All license plate.
2: <laughs> uh, R-
0: Ron always <laughs> says it. <that>. Big <laughs> Boomers on the line.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh geez well you know i guess it uh it, it actually started a long time ago where i grew up in Klamath falls oregon and where i grew up you know it's a it's a farming ranching timber type community and and uh long story short it's a community that was torn apart uh growing up through you know a lot of uh conflict associated with wildlife and and agriculture hmm. and uh uh, it got so bad, in fact, that I left and moved to Montana almost 18 years ago and, and really started a, a career with with uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service uh, focused on helping agriculture and wildlife be more compatible. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, we can get into the details of it all. But, but for me personally, I think it was growing up and, and seeing a lot of bad things that happened in the Climate Basin that pitted wildlife against people Mm -hmm. and in the end nobody won and you know maybe thinking there was a better way to bring about you know win-win solutions uh for everybody so
0: and and you have a biology degree
2: yeah i I went to to oregon state university Uh, go Beeves, you know (laughs) (laughs) big uh, boomer ladies and gentlemen (laughs) big (laughs) boomer (laughs) (laughs) um
0: yeah wildlife science uh and, uh, for folks that don't know, you know, a lot of our members will know the, the acronym NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain uh, what that agency is and how it fits into the government.
2: Yeah, so so it's kind of a, one of the best kept secrets, I think, also in the conservation world where we're a division of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, the agency was, uh, was formed back in the 30s under Hugh Hammond-Bennett. Uh, In response to, again, tragedy, you know, where we had a dust bowl and a lot of of people in a lot of hurting situations associated with, you know, improper land use practices. And so the organization was founded as a a, a technical resources for for communities and and private landowners to help put conservation on their land to both produce crops, but also minimize soil erosion and water. And, And so that's evolved over time to address other resource concerns like, you know, water and air and and wildlife habitat. And so we're a a, a non-regulatory federal agency that's basically located in every county of this country. Um, And farmers, ranchers, private timber owners, they come in um, and and we work with them uh, to help them help their land. I mean, that's our mission, it's Mm -hmm. that
0: simple, so. And, excuse me, I introduced Ron He's kind of like, you remember the old uh, television commercial for BASF? You don't know BASF, but you know everything (laughs) that BASF makes better. Right. Uh, That's Ron Leathers in a nutshell. You might not know Ron Leathers, but uh, every land acquisition, every partnership, um, darn near every acre that this organization's put on the ground since 2003 when you started, um, you've, you've had some touch to it. Uh, so, there, there's your introduction. That's as nice as I'm going to be to you. Uh, what, uh, Mr. There, Wyoming, what's your background?
1: Well, there was a great description earlier today. Um, and somebody mentioned, you know, when you go on a parade and somebody comes along with the sweeper at the end of the parade and mm-hmm. cleans up after the horses... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> um, background. So yeah, I, I grew up in Wyoming, actually, uh, and sage grouse are near and dear to my heart. And uh, boy, when did we start this, Tim? This is uh, twelve years ago.
2: I'm losing track. My anyway, yeah, 2009 is really when we.
1: So ten years ago, um, you know, we sat down and we started talking about sage grouse, and, and I thought, man, that takes me back to when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in in Laramie, Wyoming. Um, and that's kind of the heart of sage-grouse country out there. Um, cattle ranches and, and sagebrush all over the place. And, and uh, you know, Tim and, and Dave came in and started talking to us about, man, we can do some really cool stuff for sage-grouse here. And, and I got to play the western boy. <laughs> and so I jumped all over that. And, and uh, boy, I was, I was pretty excited to be a part of that at the time. And, it, you know, still it amazes me every day all the things that we've done for this bird.
0: And you have a really interesting background in that you also have a biology degree, but you kind of, you know, and you spent some time being a biologist, but you've also been... And this is weird to say, you're an accountant finance sort of biologist hybrid, right?
1: Yeah, and some government affairs pieces thrown in there. Uh, how,
0: how conflicted are you, Ron? I'm, I'm a little <laughs> bit messed up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, I've, I've got a background. Uh, you know, I, I went to the University of Wyoming, I've got uh, a bachelor's and a master's degree in wildlife biology. Uh, it didn't take me very long to realize I'm a terrible biologist, but uh, a pretty darn good politician. And, <laughs> Uh, started in this in this job managing the the grants and the agreements for the organization, and realized you know that's where the growth of this company is going to be. Uh, and then later in life realized boy I'm going to need some more education if I'm going to do that. So I went back and got an MBA later in life, and and uh, that really gave me the baseline um, you know to to talk the multiple languages you have to talk in this organization. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, it's been it's been a, a great ride to, to be able to talk to the biologists in a language that they can understand. Right. And talk to the business ops folks in a language that they can understand and I think it's I, I hope anyway it's been beneficial. Yeah, to the it's a it's a very
0: special skill. Just you know, it, there's not a lot of folks that have that dual um, ability to talk both sides yeah i'm a bit of a unicorn <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not go crazy <laughs> and, and rounding out this crew uh michael brown i introduced you as uh, the best baseball player in an organization of 400 employees yeah um i, I don't think that's a stretch because you have you do have some um I don't remember if you played minor leagues for a little bit. I know you played college ball. UC yeah, Davis, right?
3: Yeah, played at UC Davis. Played actually other side of the state here in Iowa and Clarinda A's in a wood bat scout league. That's kind of set up as a uh, getting people ready for the minor leagues. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you, uh, you obviously got a biology degree at Davis.
3: Yeah. So I. I don't know how quiet I got here but I'm, hap- <laughs> I'm happy I'm here. I grew up in uh, Santa Cruz, California, which is about 70 miles south of San Francisco right on the bay. I grew up 2 miles from the ocean, played in the redwoods and that, you know, that was my experience with the wildlife and ended up going to UC Davis and getting a degree in wildlife biology and that formed into a master's program looking working with private landowners on wetlands, which are huge in California. Uh, and really gave me a passion for figuring out how to help private landowners manage their land better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got me in with PF randomly in Washington State. And uh, was a biologist up there for a couple years and got promoted to this you know broader regional landscape of working with sage-grouse across the West. And it's been a blast.
0: Uh, so today you're essentially the point person for the organization for s- the sage-grouse initiative. Yep. All right, so Ron, you started down this road, and I'm glad you sort of stopped yourself. But let's <laughs> let's um, let's talk about the beginnings back in you know in ten years ago. Um, how SGI or Sage Grouse Initiative came together. What 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 was the catalyst for getting um, you know a focal e- an emphasis on um, improving sage grouse habitat in the country?
1: yeah i think i you know tim's got a better a better backstory on that from n r c s s perspective so Sage Grouse started at n r c s um and the initiative really kicked off before p f was ever involved and i think you know at that point it was looking for home and it was looking for somebody that can that could jump in and shepherd this thing and i guess you know Tim maybe can tell that story a whole lot better than i can
2: yeah so so go back to two thousand nine mm-hmm. uh We had a chief, Dave White, and I would give Dave White a lot of credit for starting the sage grouse initiative and really giving us the opportunity to put something different together. And and at that time, um, we knew that sage grouse uh, were in trouble. They've been in trouble for decades, right? It's a massive geography, 11 states, 200 million acres. These large, intact landscapes that the birds rely on have been chopped up by a hundred different things, um, and the birds have been on decline.
0: And just to state the obvious, but just to make sure, um, when you say sage grouse, the obvious connection is they need sage habitat. That's right. So sage grouse
2: cannot live without sage brush. So they're they're kind of a a freak show. I mean, when you look at them, you know, biologically, Mm -hmm. they have no muscular gizzard. Okay. if If you fed bird food <laughs> or seeds to a sage grouse, they would die. Huh. They only eat in sagebrush the leaves yep. all winter long, and they actually put on weight during the winter eating those leaves and then they transition to invertebrates and forbs and so forth, hmm. but they always have sagebrush as a part of their diet and so So one of the things that they 've evolved is these are big, large, treeless you know mm-hmm. uh, landscapes, and they just have these really unique habitat needs. Uh, to to make a living, but but bottom line, back in back in 2009, early 2010, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service came out with a with a ruling that sent a shockwave through the entire Western community, and they said that sage grouse were biologically warranted for listing under Endangered Species Act, but but that that listing was precluded by other priorities, and uh, and like I say, a shock wave might even be an understatement because mm-hmm. if you look at that 200 million acres, that's Every acre of that's grazed by domestic livestock. You know that's where we get a lot of our coal, a lot of our oil, a lot of our gas, a lot of our wind energy. I mean, this is these have huge implications economically for these rural communities, for the Western economy, all those different things. And so, so again, I go back to Dave White and our chief, right? Where, um, you know, he basically uh, was a, was a pioneer, a very visionary leader that said we can do something about this. And, and he really gave us an opportunity to, to see about taking some of those threats that were fragmenting that landscape um, and, and seeing if there was linkages hmm. between the impact on the bird and impact on the ranch itself. And if there was, was there a way we could couple those threats and create a win-win solution and then leverage that resource through NRCS that we talked about, where we have these great relationships and all these communities, develop win win solutions, and then couple those with Farm Bill funding to bring a scale of implementation where you benefit the population of birds. Mm-hmm. And so so that's really, I would say, you know, the the very start of the Sage Grouse initiative was days after the service made that 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 warranted listing you know uh, Crosstown town in dc our chief got on the steps and says you know what we're not going to stand idly by we're partnering up with uh with our with the ranching community we're partnering up with our friends at feds forever and all anybody else who wants to join us we're not going to take this line down we're going to actually try and go solve you know this problem
0: and, and nothing like this had ever been done to this magnitude across um, interest groups before Nothing even
2: close is that on, right on the scale of what we're talking about, and, and again, it was an all out um, effort to really again put enough of the right practices in the right places mm-hmm. to change that trajectory for sage grouse in a landscape that covers roughly a third of the U.S. Right, you know, you got to, you start thinking 200 million acres, I mean, Yellowstone Park is two million, okay, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> so and We have to do this in a matter of years,
0: not decades, right? right? And, you know, at the time, well, even still, there's not a sage-grouse limited, sage-grouse forever. You know, pheasants forever at that time, you know, 2009, 2010, quail forever is only four or five years old. How did pheasants forever come to be, um, you know, one of the major partners, one of the major players in sage-grouse? So,
2: once the chief decided that we were going to go all in, the first thing we actually did was, you know, we, we hired an independent science advisor. And so, we went and we looked across, uh, you know, the, the country and figured out, you know, who are the who's who's in sage grouse research that that could help us and advise us on where we need to work, what we need to do, and those kind of things. And that's where we found Dr. Dave Noggle out of the University of Montana. Hmm. So the first thing we did is we worked a deal out with the university
0: to, to allow him to advise us. See, I thought you guys were like booze and buddies from 12 years old. You guys are such good friends. <laughs> well, and,
2: <laughs> and we have been. I mean, we we're, we basically see each other more than we see our families. Honest right? to God, this is
0: the first time <laughs> I've
2: ever seen you alone. <laughs> yeah, well, I call them, I mean, yeah, we're, we still I touch base. Don't I worry figured you're it. FaceTiming during this. <laughs> So so, so, Dave, so th- you guys <laughs>
0: didn't have a relationship, Dave Noggle, we, before um, we met through sage grass. No kidding.
2: From, from day one, though. So we were kind of joined at the hip from day one, oh. and Dave White, again, gave us a lot of rope to, oh. to help put this together. But one of the things that we had to do very first was to figure out uh, kind of a spatial game plan. You know, how do you eat an elephant that big? And so the very first thing that we did was we worked with all of our states, you know, hmm. in the state game and fish. And, and every year, the states for 50 years have been counting birds when they come and breed, right? And they all get together at the same place. They call it like a, like a, lec- a lec, lek, L-E-K, yep. right? And they, they count them every year. And, and the, the, the fascinating thing was at that time, uh, Wyoming had taken their lek data and they did some fancy GIS work and realized that sage grouse weren't uniformly distributed over their habitat, mm. that they're they're really clumped in their distribution. There's like five here, five here, 500 here. Mm. And so they could identify those areas, and they called them core areas. Um, and and, and, and in, in total, when they looked at Wyoming, they were so clumped that 25% of the land had 75% of the birds.
3: Wow.
0: From a biologist's perspective, that's what you could, would dream for, right? Exactly. So this was where the light started to go mm-hmm. off, you know, and
2: the light bulbs started going off. And you're like, wow, if we, did a, if we did the right things there, we could benefit 500 birds versus other places we could benefit five. Mm-hmm. And so the first project that we did was brought all the states together, pooled all the, the LEC data, and built a range-wide core area map you know, with with all of the states. And so the, the same pattern held through throughout the entire 11 states. Really? And so now we knew, okay, here are those areas where from a conservation perspective, we want to make sure that we understand what are those threats inside those areas that are causing fragmentation that, that impact ag and wildlife that we can work on. Um, and so once we had that that, that kind of figured out, we could work with all of our state conservationists and all of our, yeah. our partners to come up with a plan uh, to to do those practices that would address the threats in those areas. Um, but 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 we also quickly realized that wow, this undertaking is so big, and and now that we know kind of where we want to work, we realize that these are locations that we don't necessarily have a lot of people. These are one man or one woman field offices in the middle of nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. That that and. And and that's where we're going to be wanting to push all of this uh, effort to write custom plans and and funnel resources, Um, the science. You know, we needed to not only have Dave Noggle as our science advisor, we had to have a lot of resources to be able to, uh, assess when we're putting practices, is it working? Mm-hmm. Are we getting the response from the birds and, and and so and then we had this communication need, you know, as far as not only to to capture and tell these stories, but we needed to increase partnerships, increase participation. And so we were like, we need capacity, we need science, we need communications, and we need to do this as this big bold partnership. Who is it that's out there as one entity that could really help us make all of that come together and that's where through relationships with the intermountain west joint venture and pheasants forever we put together our very first partnership agreement to to make that happen i think that's where our relationship really Mm -hmm. was born
1: yeah really it goes back to lanesboro minnesota at this this exact team meeting meeting, right 10 years ago
2: that's right uh, in
1: in bunk bunk facility in lanesboro (laughs) minnesota when we had tim and dave come down and talk to us about Sage grouse and what they needed, and and how important it was that the organization, you know, participate in that, and uh, give a lot of credit to to Howard Vincent, our CEO. You know, he he gave us some rope, and was more than willing to let us hang ourselves with it, and and fortunately, you know, we we made good stuff out of it, um, and. and you know tim and dave came down and, and we talked sage grouse they gave us a presentation and and there were a handful of us that that started talking sage grouse at about eight o'clock that night and and about two or three o'clock in the morning we were still talking sage grouse <laughs> and realized i think we have something we can work with here uh and, and you know a beautiful partnership is born at that point um and, and like tim said you know the intermountain west joint venture was a big partner there helping to to kind of round up a lot of resources this is this initiative from the start hasn't been pf and nrcs combined Mm -hmm. um it's been pf and nrcs helping to shepherd a whole bunch of partners across that landscape uh this is this is an area that we didn't historically work in we didn't have a footprint in Mm -hmm. and so you know we're we're trying to figure out who we can work with in these areas who can bring you know dollars to the table who can host positions and all kinds of just details and, and um you know that the uh, joint venture helped us to achieve that
2: so, so ron you're, you're you're jogging my memory too on that minnesota all-team meeting i remember it was at the boy scout retreat right
1: yeah, was it, uh, yeah. it was it it was a youth conservation or, facility yep
2: yeah and then we had these dorm rooms and i remember we distinctly had bunk beds <laughs> and, <laughs> and then dave and i were in we were in this room there was four bunk beds and it was actually Dave Noggle, myself, and then our chief of staff at the time, Jason Weller, yep. before he became our chief. And so we were all there, and, and and again, this was our first introduction to a lot of what PF had to offer, mm-hmm. and I distinctly remember that meeting with Howard and with you and, and with Jason and David. we're kind of hashing out so many of these details about, maybe we could actually do this, 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 and do it all in this massive agreement, and... Yeah, That's right. right. And I then g- go retire to
1: the bunk bed. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I'll,
0: I'll call that out to our members listening. You know, this is not a palatial Marriott that we stay at for a team <laughs> meeting. You know, all of us and our partners stay in bunk beds, uh, universal toilets. <laughs> 20-man you know, dorm room. Uh, <laughs> pizza buffet. We, we, you know, very lean here. Um,
2: very lean. That was It was it a was great time. I remember the, the volleyball tournament that night yep. that all your team members were taking part in as well. So (laughs) that was before michael
1: he'd have killed us all
0: (laughs) yeah you you are a tall drink of water aren't you i've had some good spikes on tim (laughs) 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 so uh, so sage grouse uh how long uh, did sgi take before you realized that nrcs hey we we got a recipe here
2: yeah So a couple other important parts of it. So, so in that very first year, we developed a spatial game plan, right? That said, here are the most important places that we could work. And we identified, you know, again, when I say we, this is the big partnership. Mm -hmm. We said, and here are the big threats that, that we're going to work on. Um, and then we went to our state cons, you know, our bosses in each of each of our states for NRCS and, and asked them, you know, in order to implement this, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And so they started to identify field offices and they said, I really need a biologist in this field office or I need a range conservationist or archaeologist, whatever they were. And so what we did is we, we had this big master map. I think there was 20 positions on that thing um, that said, OK, here's my wishes, here's my needs. Um, and, and, and then again, we did the same with the science and, and, and the comms. And then when we put this big partnership together, um, I think it took us just a couple of weeks and we had over 40 paying partners. Hmm. I think we matched up $7 million overnight of, I mean, these are, these are diverse partners. These are people like. Utah Department of Ag was a big partner. Conical Phillips, Rocky Mountain Power, and then, you know, many on the, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Mule mm. Deer Foundation, you know, all, everybody's just jumping and, on board. And, and
0: why are they, ju- what's their motivations?
2: they all their motivations are different. Yeah, It's not a singular purpose, but, but I think when you look at sage grouse, think of the canary of the coal mine. Because they really are emblematic of the 350 other wildlife species that live in that landscape. And so if your mule deer foundation, as as an example, Mm -hmm. they see the same exact factors that are impacting sage grouse, also impacting mule deer. The same can be said for elk. Power companies, energy, little different motivation, right? right? They want to proactively solve this problem and, and avoid you know, additional regulation. And it
0: relates back to the shockwave
2: you're talking about, right? Exactly. And so, so all these diverse partners uh, came to the table with one common purpose and one common vision, and that was, again, to proactively solve this problem, leave that sagebrush in a much better state, avoid additional regulations, and do it. In a proactive voluntary manner and that's really when sgi was started we also have this thing called the 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 bright line that we've adhered to from day one we don't get into policy that's not our role not to say policy is not important it's just that's not what we do we do voluntary conservation Hmm. and so by hyper focusing only on putting proactive voluntary conservation on the ground we were able to leverage an incredible amount of uh partners in a very short period of time and then put that infrastructure in place. So, so those people were in place overnight, the science team was in place, the co- it just, it fell together really good. And then uh, what what that afforded us to do then is be equipped, uh, you know, again, with, with our staff to have plans on the shelf that we could use farm bill funding to help implement. Hmm. Um, and so it was just, it was done incredibly fast um, and in a way that, 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 Brought in a
0: lot of different partners to, to make it possible. And so, so I want to spend a little time, you know, I, I eventually I, I want to get to working lands and what the next step of this program, but I want to spend a little time learning about sage grouse more, just the biology and the habitat. You know, obviously we talked about the need for sage habitat, sage brush, and you've touched on Lex as the key component for the initiative. And I understand a lek to be much like prairie chickens or sharptails. It's kind of a booming ground where they all congregate to kind of dance off. You know, we all did this in college too, right? <laughs> right. Who's the best dancer gets the best mate, right? And that's what sage grouse do with leks. But what I don't quite understand is that's just the dancing ground, right? That's, um, you know, why is that so critically important for sage grouse? just that dancing ground and is is their nesting habitat always really closely related to that lack is there a winter habitat component Um, we talk so much about pollinator habitat with pheasants and quail is there a pollinator component brood cover um, you talked a little bit about insect needs um, during the early years or or early months of a, a sage grouse so I'm assuming pollinator habitat plays for sage grouse but Michael, maybe walk me through the basic sage grouse biology 101.
3: Yeah, I mean, so the sage grouse, the the lacks are key, but where those lacks are actually really uniquely placed on the landscape. So additional research, right? We're always looking at where we can focus our efforts to have the biggest impact. Uh, and those big leks that are most visited are near mesic resources, which in the West makes sense, right?
0: Well, you got to explain yeah. mesic for that, a marketing guy. Yeah. I know what it is, but get, get, hit me with it anyways.
3: So these wet meadows, okay. spots that are to— Wet meadows is okay. a mesic. Yeah, wet All meadows, right. uh, wetlands, uh, creek bottoms, riparian areas where you're going to have a lot of water, essentially, right? You're going to have increased production in those areas for grasses and flowering plants and trees. Uh, Trees may be less important. But in the West, that's critical, right? We're in landscapes where you're getting an average of six to nine inches of precip for the whole year, right? So we're high desert in a lot of places. So your most productive ground is going to be these wet meadows. And so you find your biggest lakes near these wet meadows because... That's where the chicks uh, and the females have to go to get bugs, right? We talked about they don't have muscular gizzards, so they're not eating seeds. They're going to eat fleshy material off of plants. They they love things like dandelions that have that white milky sap hmm. in it, salsify. Uh, and the best place to get those are in those wet spots.
0: a uh, uh, sage grouse the only upland bird without a gizzard?
3: Yeah, they're the only known bird without a muscular gizzard. So... What,
0: they're like dinosaurs that didn't evolve quite a yeah. bit? Really? <laughs> Di- <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah? So, yeah, something to hmm. do that. All right, go they, ahead.
3: They really can't, I mean, they're really the only thing that eats sagebrush. That's, that's it. I mean, they put on weight with sagebrush. Sagebrush has a huge terpene content in it, which is a chemical compound that most things won't eat it because of it. And it hurts them, right? Hmm. And sagegrass have figured out how to eat it. So they're that oddity, right? That they're tied directly to it. So you get those wet meadows with good sagebrush habitat nearby those lakes, and that's what's driving that, those areas. Um, and sagebrush, depending on where you're at in the range, are all a little different. So some will kind of live their whole life history in a, you know, a large landscape, but all kind of right there. You get up into Montana uh, and the start of the Missouri River, and they're traveling 200-plus miles in a year going from Montana up into Canada and back to meet all those life So think about
0: it, uh, 200-plus miles in upland bird. I mean, it's essentially kind of a mini-migration, right?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's just one type, and then we'll, you know, that's kind of one-phase migration. There's some groups that'll do kind of three-phase migrations. They'll have winter grounds, they'll have breeding grounds, and then they'll have summering grounds, and they move, right, to get those. It's
0: like you need a duck stamp to hunt these things.
3: (laughs) 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 Almost. But what's really critical is, right, that it's true for anything. You've got to have those resources close together. So if we can focus those efforts and hit those wet meadows, um, those wet meadows that stay wet year after year, that's where we have our biggest leks consistently Kay. again and so again. So it is
0: all correlated. The lek is close to the wet meadow. So you've got your dancing ground, you have your nesting cover, and yep. you have your brood cover. And it's always going to be very adjacent to each other, basically yeah right? the
3: closer that's all the is, the bigger the population a, a, and
0: state. then the the winter habitat they can find that because in essence they're sort of migratory,
3: yeah, to an extent, I mean, like we said, the big thing they need for winter habitat is they've got to have sagebrush and they've got to have sagebrush tall enough that it gets above the snow, so that you know that can be the limiting factor in the winter um that's where the big Hmm. fires come in when you get out in the west is you get a big fire like last year in nevada there was a five-day fire that took out 529,000 acres in five days Hmm. right there's no sagebrush on that landscape anymore for the birds to use so they're out they got to go find something else and will they they will to the best we know i mean that's what's driving some of the you know population fluctuations is they've got to get moved and then like we said Our population numbers are based off of knowing where those leks are and counting them. So if leks move or the population shifts to a new area, we have to find those, and we don't necessarily have the resources by which to go find where those birds have moved. So Mm. your population is going to adjust based on that annual variation.
0: So if their lek burns up, will they relocate to another lek readily? They just kind of gravitate to where other birds are? Like, if there's a dance club over here in Wyoming, they like, oh, yeah. hey, there's there's some of my buddies.
3: Yeah. To an extent, I mean, you'll see variations that, you know, a big uh, if a lek gets burned up, the nearby lek's populations will go up the next year and kind of readjust, and I've got to figure out. Because the lek is a dancing ground, but there's a huge competition, right? You want to be the bird at the middle. So if you can't compete on that lek, you're going to another lek to see if you can be the top bird. And then if you can't compete at that one, you're moving to another one to See if you can be, you know, top bird at that luck.
2: Huh. Yeah. It, it it That's an interesting point, too. When you when you have 50 birds and they're out there every day, they're strutting, they're dancing, they're doing their things, it's that one or two birds in the middle that does all the breeding.
0: Is that right?
2: I, I feel, you know, there's 48 that show up every day. Yeah. But, and they show up tomorrow and they show up the next day. But it it, it is. It's those center males. And so that's that, that's the goal of that bird as they mature is to move towards the center. Huh. Think of this. Think of an elephant versus a rat, okay? Remember the whole RK selection in, in biology sure. where, where, where R is more like a rat, where they're, they, they live very short. They put all right. their effort into lots of young. That would be more like a pheasant, yep. right, where they, 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 what are they average a year, 1.2 years, something like that, yep. lifespan. Yep. Sage-grouse, on contrast, would be your elephant. They live five and a half years on average. Okay. Okay? And so they put all their energy into staying alive. So their survivability year to year is extremely high. It's nothing like a pheasant, and what they do is they wait for favorable conditions, and they'll have a handful of young, and they'll take much better care. You know, put a lot more effort, like the elephant would, into theirs um, of getting those young. So, so you don't see the crazy fluctuations that you do in other upland birds, right. um, be, because they're more of that 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 a case selection, and so.
3: Hmm.
0: Um, th- so I was familiar with the R factor, right? Like pheasants, quail, like boomer. Yep. So the, the longer term is K. K selection. K selection. Yep. huh Okay.
2: So, so again, the, the, these birds are so unique on so many levels, yeah. right? I mean, they are the only upland bird that, that, that has that longevity. Um, and, and so it's, a, it's, it's a different life history pattern. And, and the other thing about like, when you think about their legs, right, um, it, and if you go back in time, all of our management was lek centric because mm-hmm. those are people those are places people see the birds every spring and they're congregated. They're easy to see, they're easy to count. So you say, Well, we have to protect that at all costs. Let's put a fence around it. Don't nobody go in there, right? That's how we're gonna conserve the population. The leck doesn't mean nothing. It means something, but it's it's really small. It's mm-hmm. really the habitat around it. The only reason that leck exists is to support that nesting habitat. In the surrounding landscape, Hmm. and so if something does happen to that lek, like Michael was talking about, where you burn it or Mm -hmm. or you build a house there, I mean you do whatever on the lek. As long as that nesting habitat is there, those birds will create a new lek. All it is is an open area that the boys
0: can dance and the girls can see them. Hmm. That's
1: all it is. Highest spot in the field. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Um, and you talked about some of the habitat loss factors. You know, a, a wildfire. Um, I'm assuming urban sprawl to an extent extent in some places. What are the causes for habitat loss in sage country?
2: So across the entire spectrum, if you used one word to summarize it, it's fragmentation. So the number one thing that's happening is these large intact landscapes are being broken into smaller parcels by different different mechanisms. So if you're in the far, far east part of the range um like like a lot of wyoming Mm -hmm. um you see like oil and gas development is one of the big primary driving factors that's fragmenting the landscape or you'll see also a lot of people you know in that same sort of a landscape are just you know dying to have 20 acres and a horse and so they're taking these big large ranches and making ranchettes Mm -hmm. right bird doesn't care if it's an oil field or if it's a subdivision their impacts are the same Head a little bit further north into places like Montana, um, even some of the Dakotas, you see a lot of native rangeland that's in great condition, but it's being converted to annually tilled cropland. Mm. So, uh, so that conversion is driving the fragmentation there. Um, if, if you move further west, like into the Great Basin states in Oregon and Nevada and Idaho... There you really have, they, they call it the big squeeze, you know, at the lower elevations in that five, six, seven inch precip zone, you have invasive species, primarily like cheatgrass, hmm. which, which comes in and, and uh, in those really arid landscapes, um, these seeds basically take that moisture early in the year, and they rob the native perennial plants, and when it grows um it then senesces way earlier in the summer and creates this tinder you know tinder box that all these dry lightning or automobiles or whatever start that on fire Hmm. and when the sagebrush burns it takes like 50 years for it to come back wow so at the low elevation you're, you're you're you have this cheatgrass fire interaction and then at the higher elevations you know through a hundred years we have we have the opposite story where we have way too little fire and and so again you know smoky bear and and tragedy the commons way back when has allowed these conifer trees like western juniper pinyon pine to inhabit these otherwise treeless landscapes and these birds hate that and and so uh they just never evolved with tall structure or anything like that and so again you have the upper elevations where there's more precip being infected with mm-hmm. the trees, the bottom with the cheatgrass and so these birds are being squeezed in the middle. So so again it's different depending on where you're at in the range but, but it all ultimately results in fragmentation of the large open landscape and that's really uh, what we're trying to address. Hmm. So we always
3: kind of say like you want to stand on the mountaintop and see sagebrush as far as you can see in every direction. Yeah. Right. That's prime sage-grouse habitat. Doesn't matter which way you go. It's, it's out there.
0: So I want to come back to this, the habitat loss, because that's critical to the initiative, right, working with landowners to sort of prevent the fragmentation. But before we go there, I have a couple more biology questions (laughs) just to to close that loop. You know, and I am comparing it to pheasants and quail. um, You know, how many pheasants will lay 11 eggs, right, in a clutch, just rough numbers? What's a sage-grouse?
3: Average is... Six to eight. Six to eight. So it is significantly significantly lower. A- yep.
0: And uh incubation time pheasants I think are twenty three days.
3: I believe sagegrass are twenty eight.
0: A little bit longer. Yep. Um a pheasant loses a nest before they're hatched, the pheasant will renest. But if the bird you know if the chicks are hatched and then we get a snowstorm and they all die, it's not going to renest what what's a sage grouse's um, um motivation for for renesting
3: they'll renest and the, again that's dependent on which part of the range uh you get up into Washington and their renest rate is a lot higher than the other parts of the range really? for whatever reason um but I think that's just dependent on the timing of the year and if they think there's enough resources right. Sage grouse are really, they're focused on surviving. If you can get them through that first year, their survivability is like 80%. So wow. that's really their driving force is if they think there's enough resources, yeah, they'll re-nest. But if it fails, they might not. They might go, all right, well, right, I'm just going to cache it and I'll do it next year.
0: Uh, I asked about pollinators a little bit, and the obvious connection since they're eating bugs is if we can plant pollinator habitat within sage there's some benefits there or is that hard to pull off
3: you can i think that comes back more to um, the timing and the landscape right there's a couple things at at play we talked about those wet meadows that's where you're going to get your flowering boom in the spring that's why we talk about this with sage-grouse, they follow that green line in the spring. As everything else is drying out, those wet meadows are the only green thing, and that's what sage-grouse are just, they're following that down in, because you're getting the most bug production, you're getting the most flowers, which is giving your bugs, you're getting these flowering plants. You get in some other area, I mean, saying sagebrush country is kind of hard to, codify because it's so dynamic in terms Mm -hmm. of how diverse these landscapes are and you can get wonderful flowering plants um, in rocky soil that look bare the whole rest of the year but you hit this time of year you get out there and that's just a sea Hmm. of flowers and they'll pick up on that right and they'll hit those spots they know where they're at and they'll get the bugs off of those spots
2: yeah, I think the other thing to keep in mind here that's maybe another difference with pheasants or quail or yeah. something is is sage grouse are largely, they're a native species and these habitats are largely native. So they're not like previously broken farm ground. They, they're just, they're natural habitats. And so the diversity of forbs and flowers and uh, all the the stuff we would think about planting mm-hmm. maybe to get pollinators, a lot of these places actually have that already. It's already there. Yeah, it's already there. And, and, and so like like from the bug perspective, One of the biggest opportunities we have out west, again, these are really arid landscapes. I mean, we were just joking. It's rained probably as much as we've been sitting here in Iowa over the last two days as most of these sites will get in the entire year. And so one of the big practices that we do is when we see these wet meadows uh, out west where we have these incised channels, lowered water table, that's, greatly reduce the amount of 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 water holding in that in that particular swale which then grows a lot of those green groceries provides Mm. the substrate for the bugs and the forbs and so forth and so that's one of the things that we would do is actually fix the hydrology and the vegetation comes naturally so it's a little different
1: yeah we talk about green ribbons that go through the west it it, the more we can keep that the width of that green with ribbon you know the, the wider that green ribbon the better benefit to these birds and it's it's not an if you build it they will come it's if you put water on that landscape
2: hmm. they'll get there yeah. just just add water right
0: <laughs> and from a um, a food source pr- perspective i'm assuming when you know the bugs die off just because in, it gets cold that's when they, the sage grouse start eating sage instead of bugs just you got natural it. like hey uh, i guess i got to Go to the salad buffet.
2: When
1: it gets colder, it yep. gets dry. Yeah. Again, water is just, water is life in the West.
2: Okay. And if you want to find sage grouse, like through the summer, right, as soon as it starts drying out, they're, they're, they're getting more and more concentrated to those little ribbons of green. Mm-hmm. They're tied to that. And so pretty soon, even those faint ribbons of green will senesce, and that's when they transition. And it's 100%. At that time, when they move to that winter range, mm-hmm. they eat nothing but sagebrush leaves, which is, again, is... Why it's okay. so
0: darn important? Yeah, you can't have sage grouse without sagebrush. It's that simple. Um, the, the I know early on we talked a lot early on in pheasants forever and quail forever's introduction to sage grouse that we were tying flags onto barbed wire. Explain the background behind why that's important, and is that still, uh, you know, is that still a practice that benefits sage grouse? Um,
2: Big picture, if you're going to solve sage-grouse, you need to keep these large, intact landscapes, large and intact. Okay? Mm -hmm. The one single land use that does that is cattle ranching or or even sheep ranching, right? Where we have people out there that are maintaining large, intact ranch, you know, for for all all, all these, these, these grasslands. One of the things that you need in order to run a ranch is a fence. Right. Um, and, and, and with sage grouse, again, they're a little different animal. Um, when they go to these breeding sites or their, their, their legs, um, they come in pre-dawn. Okay. So before the sun comes up, it's pretty dark. And what happens is, let's say it's a flat playa, right? And mm-hmm. their leg is at one end of it as they're flying in. They don't fly real high. Right. They fly they're B-52 right bombers. Exactly. They're right. just bombing, and they flap, they glide, they flap. But all they're doing is staying right above the height uh, of the sage grouse or the sagebrush. Right. They don't see the fence. Gotcha. And so, in some of those locations, we have high risk collision, uh, or high, 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 uh, yeah, risk of collision with the birds. And so, what we found is that a, it's not all fences at all. We know where these areas are at. And so we've built a tool across the entire west that, that we use in every single conservation plan with every ranch that shows the areas of the landscape that pose a risk. Because, for instance, if we have more topography in that landscape, those birds don't fly up, down, up, down. They do fly up and over it there. We don't have problems with fences there. So, so again, we use the tool to make sure we don't put new fences in those areas. Gotcha. But the fences that are there, we found that there's these white little flags, which are basically just vinyl siding that you cut and you <laughs> snap on the top. And all it does, it makes them visible, and we can reduce collisions by up to 80% wow. by putting a
0: piece of plastic on the clip. Because when they hit that wire, a lot of times they, they might break a wing or... Yeah, we don't. Them we we so. don't know the mortality
2: rate or the injury rate. You know, we don't. Uh-huh. We don't necessarily know that. We just know there's evidence of a strike with a feather. You know, right. usually with the, with the barb. So, so, so either way, that's one of our common practices now. Is once we've learned all of that, right. um, because again, grazing is part of the solution here. We want to make sure that that's done in a way that's you know compatible. Is is we make sure that every fence that we put in this entire 11 state area is taking that into consideration and and i don't even know our current numbers on it's thousands of miles of fences we
3: have taken out or marked 312 miles of fence in the Mm -hmm. west
0: 312 312 miles miles of fence it's a lot of fence yeah it's a lot of vinyl siding flags (laughs) i would wish i would have created yeah yeah (laughs) 11 states what are the 11 sage grouse states
3: we got Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado. Those are our 11 states. And Utah. Utah.
0: And Utah. And if I recall correctly, your home state, Ron, Wyoming, accounts for, it's a huge percentage of the total population, right? Isn't it like 60 or 70 percent?
1: Yeah, it's a big number, forty-three percent. Okay,
0: yeah. still a big number. Yeah. So, in order, just what are the top three states after that? Wyoming, number one state in terms of population. What? What are
2: st- so Montana would be second. Okay, about eighteen percent, and then it's it's kind of a tie between Idaho and Nevada, fourteen percent each. Okay, and then you get into Oregon and and uh, you know and the other. So, the other thing to keep in mind about all of the states are important right and and they're 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 geographically um you know they're the same species they're greater sage grouse but but they're spread over such a large geography that it's really both the distribution and the abundance that we're trying to conserve
0: okay
2: um there there is a there is another sage grouse called a bi-state sage grouse that is actually a genetically distinct greater sage-grouse. straddles the Oregon, I mean, the, the California-Nevada border. Really? And we have a, our own special conservation partnership and, and strategy there working just to conserve those birds uh, separately.
0: Really? How do you know it's a different species?
2: Uh, so they did a lot of genetic work, you know, and they've been isolated for a long time. And, and so those results indicate that it's genetically distinct and a
0: uh, whole different ballgame Th- It still doesn't have a gizzard, though. Uh, nope. No. <laughs> 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 well, right. I, well, and
3: we have the Gunnison sage grouse, which is right. another one. It's been isolated. It actually has some physiological features that are different. You know, its huh. feathers are slightly different. Its display is just a little different, right. but it's tied to the Gunnison Basin in Colorado. Yeah,
0: okay. Uh, how m- is, that, uh, is that an endangered species?
3: Yeah, that one okay. got listed. It's Like I said, it's a really tied into just the Gunnison right. Basin, so it has a lot smaller footprint than the overall.
0: Um, All right, so... I want to work back to working lands, Um, and I'm going to tease, you know, before we get done, we're going to talk a little bit about sage-grouse hunting, so don't turn us off just yet. But, um, you know, we talked about habitat and the fragmentation. Enter sage-grouse initiative, what's now become Working Lands for Wildlife. Explain kind of the philosophy behind preventing that fragmentation through this initiative, through working lands with uh, farmers, ranchers, producers. Right.
2: So, so I would say, again, now you get, you know, a vision of the, the big picture problem. Um, the opportunity-wise is so many of those threats that we talked about, right, from the invasive species, the fire, the trees, the subdivisions, the sod, but all of those things from a ranching perspective those are threats that they face every day. That's their number one threats in a lot of these landscapes, regardless if they have sage grouse or not, mm. right? And so so this is where, when we partner up, neighbor up with these ranches, we're helping them solve problems that they have been wanting to solve for a long time, regardless of any issues with wildlife. Really? It's for their bottom line. It's for mm. their, They want to take this fourth generation ranch and create a fifth generation. And, and so that's really what... Our first, our tagline is world class wildlife through sustainable ranching, you know. And so again, we go in and and, and like the conifer example mm-hmm. we had, right? Um, we've identified where populations of birds um, are 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 still robust, but you have trees coming in on the fringe where if it's otherwise perfect habitat. If we can go in and remove selectively those trees, we we overnight you know double the population or the or the or the habitat. The rancher loves it because they also get more water in their springs. They get more grass on the ground. It's these, these win-win solutions. And in order to do it, we can bring the farm bill to help offset that capital improvement on the ranch. And so that's really what we've done across the West is, is taken this, this voluntary approach. We, we started to address things like conifer encroachment, like those wet mesic, mm-hmm. you know, restorations. We started to deal with things like cheatgrass, uh, grazing systems, you know, trying to make sure that they're grazing in a way that's maximizing their profits. That's also making sure that we're, we're leaving enough to, you know, sustain you know the the ranch in the future, um, and, and, and quite frankly, landowners across the West didn't didn't just approve of this uh, strategy or or uh, lightheartedly jump in. They jumped in with both feet, really, and in demand that even from that very first year, far outstripped our ability to deliver. So hmm. I know our chief had given us like. 16 million dollars in equip to start this thing say hey see what you you know let's just try the waters and right. 16 million sounds like a lot but this is a huge geography nrcs and our partners blew through that on the ground just overnight hmm. and and again ranchers are, are are just they've just been insanely good partners you know and, and wanting to do more and so each year uh this 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 program has grown to where you know today i'm just looking at the final numbers in anticipation of this i mean We've been in business nine years. Okay. We have 1,856 different ranches hmm. voluntarily conserving their ranches and, and, and we're up to over seven million acres. Wow. I mean it's just it's insane, you know, that on the ground. Yeah. 427 million dollars has been plowed into this conservation. That is I mean, it's just unheard of. And 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 the other crazy thing? This bird was not listed under Endangered Species Act. It hasn't been listed for four years, right? Mm -hmm. So this whole threat of a listing is not what's driving this participation. The same number of ranchers come in today, as did in 2014 before the threat was taken away. Hmm. The motivation is really because this is what they want to do on their ranch anyway. It's good for their business right. and it's good for wildlife and that's why I think it works.
3: It well, I'd add to that cuz you know I started working on the ground and early on, not at the beginning, what working lands for wildlife and SGI has done to the relationship between ranchers and, and private landowners and their ability to work with federal government is huge. Watching the shift in communities and landscapes that understand this is really to help them stay sustainable, right? Our best defense to keep sage-grouse on the landscape is making sure that cattle ranchers are sustainable. And it's easy to give that lip service, right? But we've gone out and done that time and time again, and the ranching community is seeing that, and the farming community is seeing that, and that has changed perceptions across the West. So, right... Some of it may have started slow in areas, but just the consistent message of "Hey, let us help you help your ranch." Like, right. what do you need to help your ranch? And I would get producers like, "Okay, what do you want me for birds?" I, I'm not concerned about the birds. You see birds? Oh yeah, I see birds all the time. Great. I need to keep you on the landscape. Mm right and that changes the perception that really we're in this to help you keep these working landscapes working and that's the critical piece that i think really made this be successful yeah
0: because the i remember early on there was this mentality of the the shoot shovel and shut up right where where um there was this fear of landowners if they had an endangered species on their property but the government didn't know about it kill it bury it and keep it quiet right but that's that's slowly changed. Big government isn't the bad guy in this sense scenario. You know, I, th- I think you're hitting it right
2: on the head. It, it, it's created almost a, a complete reversal of one perception that ranchers would have of something like an endangered species. Might be this is this is really a liability, mm-hmm. right? And now it's really more of an asset. You mm-hmm. know, it's because I have these species that I'm eligible for all this extra help and all this extra funding to do what I wanted to do anyway. And was good for my business and my, my community. Mm-hmm. And I think that again, they the, just, just the neighbor neighborliness of it all, mm-hmm. you know, it's working together to solve something. We're not threatening them. We don't have regulations. We're working with people that want to work with us. And then, you know what? We do them right every time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like Michael said, I think the other, if there's a secret to any of it or, or lessons learned that we found, it's that We're not trying to create a perfect acre of habitat for a bird. What we're trying to do is keep a large landscape intact. And that means keeping the rancher first and foremost on the land. Because if you lose that, Mm -hmm. all the other options go out the window. Because, again, you got to think big picture you need compatible land use that's going to manage 200 million acres for 350 species right we can't do it on a micro scale looking at our boots we have to keep our eyes on the horizon and keep the landscape in check and or, or you know in, in in a sustainable state
3: well no i'll add to that because this this is a story that still strikes me as right this is bigger than sage we talk about the 350 species uh And that's really important, but there's a a one species, wildlife species, that people forget on this working landscape, and it's people, right? We're having impacts on people's quality of life and keeping communities running. And we had a, a project in southeast Montana, right? One of our swatters goes out all swatters our strategic watershed action team those are the shared positions we put across the west in these strategic locations i'm glad you explained (laughs) that i I honestly was envisioning black helicopters you know a guy with a net (laughs) trying to (laughs) capture
0: a sage grouse on a lek but yeah now i know it's
3: putting these people in the right spots right so they went out to work with this producer and do our standard practices right they were helping them get their ranch to a sustainable state so they helped them drill a well they put in pipelines they put in troughs they put in fences they looked at their range they gave them recommendations on when and where to put the cows and how many cows to put right and they developed this relationship that from just a sage grouse standpoint has a huge impact right it keeps that landscape intact it keeps that cattle rancher there but on the opposite side this rancher is 62 and for the first time in his life he was able to go into his bathroom and turn on hot water and have a bath He had lived his entire life off of a cistern, Hmm. right? So, I mean, what we're doing in this working landscape is bigger than sage-grouse. It's keeping these communities that have depended on this and have been here for generations on that landscape and making their quality of life better. And that's, I mean, that's what's paid, you know, that's why there's been the change in perception of, right, this isn't just about the bird. This is about keeping this way of life going into the future.
0: In this segment of On the Wing podcast brought to you by Mister Bubble, the newest sponsor <laughs> of Pheasants Forever and the Sage Grouse Initiative. I wouldn't have expected that story.
3: Yeah,
0: um, you mentioned earlier um, the farm bill, bringing the farm bill to sage grouse country, and obviously the the uh, the core listening audience of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever automatically um, thinks, "Well, you're talking about CRP, right?" But you're talking about equip well uh, what is EQIP
2: yeah what is that so so again in the farm bill this is a massive piece of bipartisan legislation passed about every five years that that in the conservation title of it uh, contains a whole number of programs Mm -hmm. so so obviously yeah CRP conservation reserve programs very well known by by Pheasants Forever you know members and 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 especially the midwest Mm -hmm. part of the country right it's a major important program um but but in the conservation tile, there's many other programs as well, and so so one of the biggest is we call our environmental quality incentives program, or, or EQUIP for short, just because every good government program has to have an acronym, right? Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to say EQUIP, right? E-Qip. And so 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 think of this in terms of working lands programs, okay? So EQUIP um, is a program that 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 is is a partnership with uh, with a farmer, or a ranch um where let, let's let's go back to that tree example right mm-hmm. so we know that those trees are a problem for sage rouse we know they're a problem for for uh the landscape and agriculture and we want to remove them but we want to remove them in a way that's beneficial to, to everybody and so we developed that custom conservation plan with the ranch and that's really important to understand is that these aren't cookie cutter every ranch has their own needs their own considerations these are not you know uh, one size fits all so so that's where all these shared positions all of our nrcs staff work together with that ranch to develop a customized conservation plan and then we look for funding to help implement it Um, because a lot of times the cost of implementation is gonna uh, not be offset just by the increase in production Hmm. you know so forth so so in that particular example um, we would look to a program, our equip program, to partner with the landowner. It's not a grant. We basically meet in the middle. I'll pay half, you pay half, okay. right? And then the landowner agrees to implement those practices. They put them in the ground, and then we reimburse them. Um, and then, again, it's it's this classic win-win, right? Society benefits by, you know, not only the the increased sage-grouse habitat in this perspective, but also all the other ecosystem service that provides. It provides cleaner water, you know, it provides reduced soil erosion, all those other benefits, Um, and the ranch benefits, obviously, because we're getting more groceries, we're getting more sustainability. And, oh, yeah, I haven't met a rancher yet that doesn't like to see more birds in the air, more, you know, deer. Well, that was going to be one of my
0: questions. Uh, Generally speaking, farmers, ranchers, Love seeing wildlife on that property that that holds true across the sage grouse range hmm. they They love seeing these birds right yeah
1: yeah, absolutely anybody in the anybody in the west views that iconic bird as as just a part of that landscape and not seeing them you know when we work with those farmers and those ranchers in the west, and we talk about sage grouse and they 'll tell you the story of their grandpa hmm. and you know seeing that lek up on the hill and how cool that was as a kid to watch those birds dance and And how he hasn't seen them in so many years and being able to help bring back that. You know, we talk about community, but we're Mm -hmm. also talking about families here and about, you know, where people came from. And everybody in the West wants to see sage grouse. They want to see elk. They want to see mule deer. They want to see pronghorn running around on those landscapes. And uh, if we can do that in a way that helps make them profitable, everybody's a winner.
0: Mm And I guess this is where our nineteen, the Sage Grouse Initiative nineteen biologists, come into play, right? Because that's where these biologists go out to these landowners, these ranchers, and talk to them about programs like Equip. Yeah. So, yep. so let me let me
2: say one thing on before we go into the details on this is this is a unique thing on Sage Grouse Initiative was that when we first met up met with the state conservationists back in the day and, and, and tried to figure out exactly what was needed where they told us that they needed about half of these positions or capacity were biologists Mm -hmm. and the other half were actually range conservationists. Okay. So, so little different background education and so forth. And this was really the first time when we sat down with feds forever and talked about the farm bill biologist program and potential opportunities. They're like, well, we don't have a, you know, a, a farm bill range con program. But we kind of need one here. And this is where PF was really nimble and said, why don't we create that? Hmm. And so this was a very important point that it was it was again kind of like the SGI approach right of matching the right practice in the right place to address the threat this is the same thing to match the right position in the right place to address the need and so now they still call it farm bill biologists, you know colloquial but right. it, but it's really not
0: <laughs> and and so, so so is that true of all nineteen of them they're now essentially rangeland conservationists Some of them I think yep. we've
1: got a we've We're, got a healthy you know diversity of those uh of those folks some are range folks some are some are wildlife folks so some may be soils folks in some of yep. these landscapes
3: or archaeology folks and yeah whoa whoa whoa, whoa 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 what <laughs> like yeah. I- indiana
0: jones or uh, what what, well, what do you archaeologists for <laughs>
3: we've well, got to make sure you're not destroying anything i don't know if we've hired an indiana jones yet i haven't met one of those yet uh, but yeah, well i think i met a few ex- over there <laughs> 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 explain the
0: archaeologist piece well
3: so right if we're spending federal dollars we can't go up and just tear out a burial site and so in some spots that's the pinch point is if you're going to put a fence or a pipeline we've got to make sure that we're not disturbing anything that's a you know credibly historic site and so what they need is someone to go out and do the survey so the rest of the work can get done Mm -hmm. and we've either hired contractors or summer interns you know that's what's been great what tim was talking on is we meet the needs of the state we talk about what's that pinch point for you to deliver these conservations conservation practices on the landscape in your backyard. Hmm. And then we work with the partners to fill that need. And so it's, you know, I'd say right now for the you know, the majority of the 19, it's a range or wildlife background. And we work with the partners in those areas to figure out what is the need that you we can fill best with one of these positions.
0: So one of the l- words I've learned along the way through this um, sage-grouse initiative is the word certainty. Mm-hmm. Wh- what does that mean, um, uh, outside of the obvious definition of certainty, what's it mean to a landowner?
2: So this was a really important topic at the very beginning. It's a very important topic today. And it's also one that's pretty atypical. So it's no, you know, no surprise you're confused by it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, everybody is. Uh, quite quite frankly, it, it's fairly simple, okay? You had a bird that the Fish and Wildlife Service was said was already biologically warranted for listing, and they were just waiting until 2015 to make it happen, right? The next day, another side of the federal government went to those ranches and said, we're from the government. We're here to help. Let us on your place. Let us look around. Let's identify all the things that could potentially be impacts with sage grouse, and we're going to help you, and we needed that trust from those ranchers that that was in their best interest. Obviously, even though we had these well-worn pathways, we've been working with them for 75 years. There was a lot of apprehension, and we knew that going in. And so, again, this is where I go back to, to Dave White and, and the Fish and Wildlife Service. It, it, they struck a deal, first deal we've ever done like this. Mm. And we basically entered into uh, a consultation between our two federal agencies at the beginning, and, and, it, and it, it said this. It said, here's the big threats we're going to address here's the conservation practices we're gonna use. Um, And we did, we placed conservation limits on those practices to avoid, you know, avoidable incidental take of putting in that practice. Um, But at the end of the day, the Fish and Wildlife Service gave us a report that said, we agree with you. If you put these practices in with these conditions, that it'll be beneficial to sage grouse. That document did two things for us, one, we made sure everybody is, adheres to those standards, and they're 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 all, you know, common sense you know standards that 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 still work for the ranch, still still work the herd. But we made sure all those seven million acres were installed exactly following that protocol. Hmm. What that then did is it gave producers the first time ever to have their voluntary conservation counted in the listing decision. Now they're getting credit, right? Mm. Because the service said up front that if you did those, those would be good things. Now they did them. Now they get credit as a group. The second thing it did is the Fish and Wildlife Service gave us what they call certainty. Um, And those producers that participate without any other further contract or consultation on their part for the next 30 years can implement every single thing in that conservation plan. And even if the birds listed, they have no additional regulation to follow. Hmm. And so so we think of it as an insurance policy sure. to where, yeah, the ranch, you know, here, come work with us. Let's do the right thing. Let's put it in the ground. You can have it, you know, count with the listing. Um, but you know what? Even if they are listed, from your perspective on your ranch, it's kind of a, a you no did issue. Everything. Yeah, you yeah. did everything. And so you know you're know protected you're good to for go.
0: 30 years if, you know, we figure out something else that we got to do drastically hey you've done everything you're you, protected you got it and,
2: mm-hmm. and and it was really novel at the
0: time it's mm-hmm. still novel
2: today and i will tell you from personal experience going back to climate if you didn't have this you would never ever have that participation mm-hmm. from that ranching community especially in those early years before yeah. we've had this demonstrated track record um it was that important and uh i think it it still is today
0: well, d- demonstrated track record, you said somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 landowner partners, right, mm-hmm. impacting more than 7 million acres. That's correct. That's crazy amount of habitat um, conservation in a 10-year period. You can literally see it from space. Is that right? Yeah. Yes.
2: And, and yeah, I'll give you the best example of it is go up to Redmond, Oregon. We have a district conservationist there. I'll give a shout-out to Chris Mundy there in Redmond, Oregon. And he had this quote early on in 2010. And and picture this woodland, right, of all these juniper trees. You know, it kind of looks like a forest where it should be rangeland. And he used to joke early on, he says, you know, you could look across this land and see by the cut who's worked with us, Hmm. right? Because you see a whole cut in the otherwise treed area. He said, now you look across the landscape And you can see who
0: hasn't worked with us. Wow. That's a statement. Yeah. So Sage Grouse Initiative, incredibly successful, short period of time, leads to more birds, more species, brand new program. So walk us through the chronology of today, how we got to working lands for wildlife.
2: Yeah. So, again, that's going back in 2010 when that started, um, and I, I would also say that it did, it led to more birds, it led to more, uh, you know, other wildlife species, but, but it also led to increased productivity, you know, um, and, and profits on the ag side of it. And so, mm-hmm. it was this mutual benefit. Um, About the same time, we had a similar, eerily similar situation happening a little further east in Oklahoma and Kansas and Texas with a a lesser prairie chicken and a Southern Great Plains story, right? Again, slightly different tweaks, slightly different approach, but it was a similar model put in place, and they called that the Lesser Prairie Chicken Initiative, you know, and and again, uh, started trying to, you know, utilize a lot of the same principles, Um, and, and then in 2012, Uh, the the chief ended up we had a new chief now, uh, Jason Weller that again slept in the bunk with us (laughs) (laughs) I'm sensing a theme was he a top bunk guy or a bottom bunk guy? So, so, so Jason, again, he was chief of staff for Dave White the whole time. Mm-hmm. And when he, when he got the reins, uh, I mean, he, he couldn't have been more supportive and he took the bull by the horns and really helped us launch this formal working lands for wildlife right. to, to bring a family or, or, a, or, a, you know, a, a, a term to what we're doing. They're not really initiatives. It's really more of a way of doing business. Makes and sense. so it, it's not a program working lands for Wildlife's not a program. All it is is a way to strategically invest existing programs to maximize outcomes for people and wildlife. Right. And so we helped create this 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 brand really of working lands for wildlife. And then across the country, sat down with partners to say, where do we have similar opportunities? And so we went to places like um, Louisiana and uh, uh, Georgia and, and started looking, or, or actually Georgia and Florida. Um, and started looking at longleaf pine ecosystems and said, well, there's a gopher tortoise and a longleaf, you know, and the Appalachian, there's this golden wing warbler, and there's this ford in the New England with a cotton tail. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, there's, 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 uh, there's actually eight different priority geographies that have the same kind of wildlife that are the barometers. Um, but, but then every one of those partnerships... Uh, again developed win-win solutions a spatial game plan this concept of certainty so so all of them have Mm. those same uh, elements now and since 2012 uh, I mean collectively we've done like 9.3 million acres almost 7,000 participants and these are now remember they're ranchers Mm -hmm. they're farmers and they're private timber owners depending Mm. on the geography and the need and so so that's really kind of again not only taken off like wildfire but it's really spurred all these other partnerships that are associated with it so so like our unique arrangement out west with sage grouse was this real close tie with with pheasants forever is kind of one of our, our, our probably our biggest primary partner but then a whole hub of i don't even know what the number is now of, of additional partners but you go look behind the curtain in lesser prairie chicken well you you're going to see PFQF again mm-hmm. they're they're kind of the core but then it's not just them there's a whole host of sure. other partners and 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 you keep going to each of these landscapes and it's a, it's a similar story although they are uniquely set
0: and well for listeners we're going to record it tomorrow it won't come out tomorrow when we drop this podcast but a future podcast will be related specifically to quail and there's two Quail oriented working lands programs. One is the Northern Bob White in the Grasslands, Working Lands for Wildlife, and that's uh, in the states of Virginia, Arkansas, Illinois, Indiana, North Carolina, Ohio, Missouri, and Kentucky. And there's the Northern Bob White in Pine Savannas, which you, you touched on in Georgia, New Jersey, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and Alabama. Those two quail initiatives. Ron, we have we have 18, 18 new
1: bodies coming on board. Yep. Just in the last six months here, we've really ramped that up, uh, went out and we were able to secure a coordinator, uh, a talented uh, Jessica McGuire came in and, and really helped us.
0: And she worked for the Georgia down. DNR yep. before.
1: Yep. And she moved over to help us with our team now. Uh, just this last week, I think, made several new offers on some of those positions. I think one of those folks started their first day on the job yesterday. <laughs> uh, welcome to Pheasants and Quill Forever. <laughs> Buckle <Here's> up. 325 <laughs> of your best friends, right? But, uh, yeah, those, those positions are just getting started, and that's really an outcropping of the success that the Sage Grouse Initiative pioneered. And, uh, boy, there's, there's so many more opportunities throughout the country. Uh, but it just it fits so well with what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're an organization that believes in agriculture. You know, Tim, Tim talked about the, the relationship between ranching and success on the ranch. Uh, Michael talked about communities and the importance of communities. You know, and that's been Pheasants Forever's mantra all along. Uh, we want to see producers on the landscape. We want, we want schools in local communities. We want banks in local communities. We want those folks to be successful. And Working Lands has allowed us to do that. Uh, you know, there was a tagline that we used to use, and I think we still use it periodically, but it's good for the bird, good for the herd. Mm. Um, you know, it's important that that whatever we do for these birds is is good for that producer. And and we've carried that mantra to quail, and we're, we're working with quail producers now to help them be successful. Um, you know, a lot of grazing happening for quail in that northern Bob White Grasslands Project that you talked about. Mm -hmm. um, Just teaching folks how to graze native vegetation, um, you know, how to get rid of fescue, which has been a part of their rotation, and graze native vegetation in a way that's successful for that bird.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to get to hunting, but if there are landowners out there that want to learn more in the West, these 11 states, about the sage-grouse initiative you know talking with the biologists how, how do folks learn more about what we're doing as a as a partnership you know the first thing i would do is just google working lands for wildlife okay you
2: google that you'll go to our homepage, and it has every one of the species and it has links to all the different websites contact information um, or, or stop by your local nrcs field office um, it's probably a, a, another good way to to get the information or or you know ask your local feds forever you know Partners or or whoever, but, um, yeah, you can get We're, there off our website too.
0: Yeah, from Pheasants Forever, you can get there. Right. But Working Lands for Wildlife, uh, and it'll tell you about all these different programs, all these different species. Yeah. All right. So transitioning to kind of the cotton candy component of the podcast, and that's uh, that's hunting. And one of the things that was really obvious when folks started. Uh, on the hunting side, to be concerned about sage grouse be- going um, endangered is, you know, there was a dramatic increase in people wanting to hunt them, um, kind of before they they wouldn't be able to anymore, and you know, that's probably counterintuitive to some folks hearing that, but it's also created a tremendous amount of interest in this bird and. You know, as we know from anything that we hunt, if you hunt it, you love the entire species, the landscape, not just that individual. Um, have you seen that, Tim, from, from your perspective in yeah, this last 10 years? Absolutely.
2: The interest in sage grouse from the sportsmen of, of, of all kinds is uh, definitely improved. And I, I would say that bird hunters definitely have a lot more interest and a lot more... Uh, not only desire to learn about it but also to be involved in the conservation of it Mm -hmm. i would also say the interesting thing is you're starting to see a lot of crossover with maybe people that don't hunt sage grouse per se but they're elk hunters and now they start to see the cross you know the habitat improvements benefiting what they care about exactly and why they should actually care about sage grouse if they care about big racks on elk right Mm -hmm. or or mule deer or prong you're starting to see a i think a a broader appreciation across sportsmen of all walks mm-hmm. of the value of these large intact, you know, chunks of sage brush for all of their species. Um, but, but yeah, definitely with the bird hunting, you know, I, we, we've, I know I've personally fielded a lot of calls from sportsmen yeah. also, you know, asking, you know, tell me about this bird. And, and it, I've used it. Everyone as an opportunity to also share a lot about the conservation side yeah. of it. So,
0: so there's 11 states with, sage grouse or based around the initiative um how many states can you hunt sage grouse in nine
3: nine no kidding yes well depending on the year south dakota occasionally has a season they only have a handful of birds so depending on the year they might have like a one day season with five permits but uh you can't hunt them in washington south dakota and north dakota and other than that you can hunt them in the rest of the states
0: and and do you feel good about that from population perspective and where we're at today
3: well i think i mean it's true of all hunting right we our game agencies do a fantastic job monitoring those populations and like i said in south dakota right they're watching that close enough that they may open it for one day to get five right because mm-hmm. it's with all hunting it's tradition right people are missing out on a tradition if they can't get there and so um, hunting by itself you get into the science of you know is it compensatory or additive loss to the population and you know everything we've always seen is it's Compensatory. There's a certain amount of birds that are going to die every year right? so your right. carrying capacity. So, regardless if that comes from hunting or from natural predation or natural loss, that's not what's driving it. It's the habitat, right? right. We pheasants forever champions that again and again and again. Right. You got to have the t- habitat and if you've and got if that. if you have
0: hunters, then you have enthusiasm and you yeah. have a will and a desire to protect that that habitat. Exactly. um If you're going to go hunt them, where you know. It's Say you're, oh, you might live north of White Bear Lake, Minnesota and (laughs) want to take a trip out west. What state would you tell a guy to go uh, think about hunting? You you know, obviously if Wyoming has 40-some percent of the birds, a guy might might target Wyoming. Would that be a pretty logical point on the compass to start heading west?
2: Yeah, I, I think. Wyoming's off it's ground zero Wyoming's yeah. just spectacular and mm. it's it's not only full of birds it's just full of life and just cool things to, why any chance you can go to Wyoming yeah I'd some take of the it. coolest people on the planet quite right frankly <laughs> <laughs> Crescent company excluded well. <laughs> yeah but I, I the other thing to point out too is each state does have their own approach a little bit mm-hmm. so. to where like a Wyoming and Montana are more of, maybe what I call it more of a general season that's, uh, you know, uh, limited in time and daily bag limits. Very similar like a pheasant structure sure. versus somewhere like a Oregon or a Dakota, you know, South Dakota, or uh, I think Utah is also like a, it's more of a permit Lottery system. Sort of yeah, from, yeah. And, and so I, again, you could d- debate the merits of them, you know, each day. Sure. I, I knew long time ago when I lived in Oregon, though it was a really big deal to get sage grouse permit and so Mm. when you when you actually drew one it was a special deal even Mm. 20 years ago and you went with the family you get two birds total in the year right but it was a big camp and everybody was out there and it was you know it, it was a little different deal than shooting one incidental to an antelope you know or something like that
0: is there a quintessential bird dog breed to hunt sage grouse with or do you not even need a bird dog and the right answer is a German short hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew
1: up hunting these things without a bird. In fact, I think I was the bird dog. To be quite frank with you, uh-huh. uh, got a great story about throwing one out of the bed of a pickup, but it's a, for another time. Uh, but you know, these these things—if you're in the right spot—it's uh, it's no dog required. Uh-huh. Um, you got to know where they're coming from and where they're going to. And if you can find that place where they where they're moving out of in the morning, where they've roosted overnight, and they're moving into a place to feed, and then they're going to move right back into that roost structure, if you know where they're going to be, you don't need a bird dog for these things. Uh, hmm. They're not yeah. a pheasant; they're not going to take off and run off after you know after you pound one. Um, they're going to they're going to be markable, and you're going to be able to go pick these things up. Um, and a lot of times, your bird dog. You put a, a bomber of a sage-grouse in the mouth of a bird dog, and it's going to change his attitude. That's
2: yeah, It's more point. like, like uh, you're bringing a pack
0: frame, like you're quartering up an elk and bringing them <laughs> <pack. laughs> <laughs> So you're saying if you miss one, you might have a shooting issue. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, if so, you're used to
1: duck pass shooting, you may want to take up a different sport. Well,
2: well, well the other thing, you might want to really bone up on the biology of the bird and where they're going to be. Because remember, these are huge landscapes. Yeah. yeah. These home ranges, remember a pheasant can live in 40 acres, right? right? You can manage a hell of a population. These live in a township. Huh. So if you're wandering around aimlessly, but they're really tied to that wet meadow and it's only in one acre of that you could walk for days without yeah, ever yeah. seeing a bird. Well, so.
0: that, that was my thought is, okay, so you got to find them. you got to figure out where the wet meadow is, and the birds are going to be there. Is but it de- as de- simple de- as that?
2: Well, it depends on exactly when you're hunting in that year. and So, there's, so there's a water, lot of... Water, right, all kinds yeah. of stuff I mean, It's there. not that simple, but...
0: Gosh, I had it already, already figured out <laughs> in my head. <laughs> so what would you look for if, if there is dry year, you, you know, it's later in the fall. You can't, you can't identify the mesic area. Um, where are they going to be?
1: You know, in a lot of these... That's the secret, that's isn't it? Really, <laughs> really, really. So tell me where you used to hunt these things. From. Where exactly did you <laughs> get them And on the side of what hill? Uh, you know, a, a big trick in sage country is getting there in time to see them come off the roost because they come off in hmm. big flocks and they go somewhere to feed hmm. um, or they go somewhere just in a mass migration. These birds like to fly. If you've ever cleaned one of these things out and looked at the color of their breast meat they fly Hmm. Uh, they don't run around and that's a dark purple breast meat because of it so they get up in the morning and they move and uh boy you get up there and you can glass and you can find out where they're moving from and where they're moving to uh you know it's a matter of getting in the right spot to begin with and then you know find a high hill and and just watch them and uh you'll find them so yeah. You
2: know, the other cool thing about sage grouse really is this landscape is really diverse and, and it contains a lot of other upland birds. And so you might come with an intention to get a sage grouse, mm-hmm. but you also might run into Hungarian partridge. Mm. You might see sharp sharptail grouse. You might see a rooster or two. You might see, depending on where you're at, valley quail. A little higher, you might have a mountain quail. You might hit the, 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 the trees hit spruce grouse. Uh, blue grouse. Uh,
3: Don't forget chucker.
2: Chuckers. I mean, these are, it, it's kind of like a upland bird oasis in the west. Well, and bring the
1: rifle because you might be able to shoot an antelope. While yeah. You're yeah. Or yeah. a mule deer or an elk. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, Tim Griffiths Outdoors.com. <laughs> what, what, what's your uh, guide service charge per day? It's a lot. Because I'm in, man. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you got
3: to make sure you can keep up with it. Yeah. Right. yeah. Ultra marathoner. <laughs> Yeah,
0: you do you you run 100 mile races for kicks
2: huh oh man i thought we weren't going there <laughs> yeah that, that is another
0: podcast um all right so so as we wind down here the other thing i you you brought up the the color of the breast meat um sage grouse you, you know I, i've heard different things most folks that i've talked to like yeah you know but not my favorite thing yeah uh, hank shaw uh on the other hand you know he's like you get a young sage hen and there are a few things that are better. You just have to play to kind of the fact that you know it, it's sage. So play that, play to that when you prepare it. What's your guys' impressions over eating sage grouse? Yeah, you, the faces you're making are like <laughs> not. you know, love the bird, but maybe not on the dinner plate. Huh?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think uh, hunter mortality is going to be an enormous uh, <laughs> factor for sage grouse. They're they're not the most. Uh, the palatable creature Hmm. uh you know you you shoot a big bomber of a sage grouse and you're gonna know that thing's been alive for five years and you're gonna (laughs) know it eats a lot of terpene (laughs) Uh, it's uh it's it's uh, a little bit pungent at times um you know hey if you if you're able to pick out a small bird and and uh, that's what you want to do with one of your two you know permit species right have at it um but you know, it may be one of those where you're, you're going to shoot that big bird and, and uh, you're going to. Check it you know, off the bucket list. Enjoy the meal out of it and then maybe go shoot a couple pheasants. All right.
2: <laughs> or, or the pronghorn.
1: The, yeah, the pronghorn will work.
0: Pronghorn's yeah. hard to beat. <laughs> yeah, they are very good. They are very good. Um, all right, as we wrap up, um, we'll start with, with Michael. Any, any final thoughts or, or things that you want to mention in regards to you know what's going on um, in the west coming up or working lands for wildlife any closing comments
3: i think the thing i would just leave people with again we've said it a ton right that the big thing for sage grouse for the quail one you're going to hear is keeping these working landscapes working that's been the dramatic change on how we approach conservation it's not just about protecting a bird right it's protecting the landscape and the things that depend on that landscape and that depends on people and ranches and that whole community that comes around it it's you know it's a full ecosystem approach and you got to keep that functional and keep those pieces there and that's what i would leave people with yeah it's it's the whole piece
0: thank you for doing this yeah Ron, the BASF of pheasants forever yes. and quail forever, <laughs> you know, what's your final thought? M-
1: Michael made a great point, and I don't think it's unique to, to sage grouse. It's not unique to the nope. West. Uh, you know, you go through central Minnesota, and you see places where they used to have a school in their town, and they don't, or they used to have a church in their town, and they don't, um, and that's landscapes that are, that are just largely changing. That's, that's farmers that aren't on, you know, family farms that aren't on the ranching or on the farm anymore. Um, and that's, that's something that, that we've got to take seriously as an organization, and we have been. And I think the approach that we're taking with working lands is going to have an impact and has had an impact on those communities. Uh, Michael, Michael put it beautifully earlier. We're not, we're not just talking about the the flying critters. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, you know, that species that's out there that's building those churches and, and living in those schools. And, and uh, people are where this where we live uh you know they didn't tell us this when we graduated from biology school but our job is people management our job is not to mess around with the bird species and you know the more that we can do to help people stay on the landscape the more we can do to to make them profitable in a way that's compatible with good wildlife the better impact we're going to have on wildlife
0: yeah well said mr sage grouse (laughs) tim thank you very much for uh for joining us what What words do you want to leave uh, our Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience with?
2: Well, I guess uh, it's pretty simple. It's a big heartfelt thank you. Thank you to all of Pheasants Forever, all of Quail Forever, the membership for the support that you've given the organization to take these big, bold steps moving out west, where quite frankly a lot of these projects don't have a lot of pheasant ties and and uh to howard to ron to michael to your whole team i mean you guys are just incredible um uh, we 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 could never do it without any of you and and i also i guess in closing this i come back to the very first question you asked me about kind of the beginnings of this and i I go back to my hometown in climate falls Mm. and ironically climate falls is also a sage grouse place Mm. it's also one of these core areas of these priority areas for conservation we've done a hell of a lot of work and and when i might when i go back there there's an old rancher that i know named mike burns and mike burns my best memory of all of this is he was the one that was hit so hard with with the the dilemma that i talked about in the beginning with the water wars and all Mm -hmm. that and it left and and now he takes me out with with uh the biggest smile you've ever seen and the mm. brightest eyes to his ranch where he's cleared just thousands of acres of conifers and he shows me these fields of beautiful green grass teeming with wildlife. He shows me springs and cricks that never ran when I was a kid that have water in them. And I just, and he's just so proud of, of what, you know, this effort has, has allowed him to do as an operation and in that community. And I, <laughs> I that makes me
0: proud, man. Yeah. So. Yeah, when you can touch your, your home turf like that and sort of something that in a way scarred you and rectify that, that's pretty special. Exactly. Thank you for uh, for joining us, for, you know, bunking with us, so to speak, <laughs> right? In the uh, bunk. You know, you I... You got a full-size bed today, didn't you? <laughs> I do today, Zach. And, and it, it is true, you know, you, you know for me, the, the Midwesterner out of this group, you know, the first time I ever seen a sage grouse was on a, a trip to Idaho where we went out with uh, some folks with telemetry and had radio collared birds so we were cheating that's how but, Ron hunts them yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. really a lot easier to find them <laughs> with the collar on. but uh, we you know we followed that antenna around until we found a bird and uh, watched a covey flush and, and and there's something so true about being in that habitat and actually putting your eyes on it to know it exists and and to have that twinge in your heart and that uh, light bulb in your mind go off and say okay I I get this I understand why why we're all involved so whether you want to uh, travel west and chase them with a bird dog or you just want to see one because they're pretty damn cool Mm -hmm. um, definitely get out west into the sage country and see all the cool shit that pheasants forever (laughs) and quail forever is doing Um, and if you want to help Supporters, maybe you're, you're you know you're not a person that gives a rip about pheasants or quail but you care an awful lot about sage you can still join pheasants forever quail forever as tim mentioned so those membership dollars that are helping us um you know f- you know hire these biologists fund these grant writers um and, and put this habitat on the ground and, and we do need your help we do need your membership to keep this going uh gentlemen Michael, Ron, Tim, I know I took up a ton of your time um, in this evening recording, but it was super interesting to me to learn more about sage grouse. And thank you so much you're doing for this iconic species. Been a real pleasure talking with you guys. All right, folks, thank you for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I'm Bob St. Pierre, and I'll see you down a two track in the woods. Maybe in a CRP field, or perhaps maybe on a sage grouse piece of ground somewhere in Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that could happen. Thanks for listening, folks.